0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: So often these things are simple. It's just about having an awareness of what's going on and a mindful intention to change that. So I think the work is about that... Um, Taking that pause between the stimulus and response. It's what Viktor Frankl talks about. You know, something happens before you just bite back or go to that place of the inner critic, which is like, oh, well, you know, I'm not good enough, or no wonder he doesn't love me, or whatever it is that you're telling yourself. You can intentionally take that pause and say, hang on a minute, what's the story I'm telling myself here? Because all of our subconscious and programming, of course, stories and we have the power to change them if only we take that pause and we take that awareness to say what is the story I'm telling myself and then how do I want to feel or what do I want to happen what is the right and the best response here not for everyone else but actually for me.
0: I'm Srini Rao,
2: and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
3: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
2: Yes, it is my pleasure to have you here. Um, as I was saying before we just hit record, um, you are somebody who was referred to me by Danielle Laporte, who is, I think, literally the only person to have ever appeared on our podcast five times.
4: Five times? Uh,
1: five times. I think so. Wow.
2: Yeah, I, I think so, which I think says a lot about... uh you know, one, how much our listeners like her and, and, you know, my own assessment of, of, you know, people that she sends our way. And she's always sent very interesting and and remarkable people our way. So when I I figured she sent you, I was like, okay, this is kind of a no brainer. We should have this conversation.
1: (laughs) No pressure.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not at all. Uh, But before we get into all of that, uh, I would like to start by asking where in the world did you grow up and what impacted where you grew up end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career?
1: Yeah, good question. So, I'm from the uh, very edge of the earth, down under, down in New Zealand. So, a long way away from you and, and possibly many of your listeners, who knows. Um, it's It's such, have you ever been to New Zealand?
2: You know, as strange as this sounds, I have, but I was like four years old and it was because my parents lived in Australia Yeah, and it was the trip we took right before my sister was born. In fact, my sister went on her honeymoon there and in a rather uncomfortable conversation with my brother-in-law, my mom says, yeah, your wife might've been conceived in New Zealand. <laughs> and I remember thinking, my sister was like, I don't know why she said that. Uh, but yeah, so I have, I have one very vivid memory of New Zealand. uh, And that was that I got to see snow and I threw a fit (laughs) <laughs> because uh, I wanted to go on a helicopter and see snow, yeah. not realizing that we were moving to Edmonton, Alberta, and I would see more snow than I ever wanted to for
1: the rest right. of my life. <laughs> but you were only four; you didn't know that.
2: Yeah. So I have been to New
1: Zealand. Yeah, it's um. Look, you know, it's so beautiful, and we do have snow, but we have we have all of all of the seasons in this one small country. And um, I think being such a small country, um, it does so many things for us. It um, it makes us strive more and I'll talk to you about um, striving in my life. But it also means that we're kind of so far down, we're looking at the rest of the world. And yes, on the one hand, we might strive, but it also gives us um, a platform to Reach higher and reach further, if you like. And funny you should talk about conception. I also have a, a conception story <laughs> around my parents. <laughs> um, it's more about it's more about the where um, they went on honeymoon. They had absolutely no money. They went on honeymoon to my mother's parents' batch, which is in a beautiful um, beach town in New Zealand. And you know, nine months later, I was born, and I have I have water in my blood you know, it's just, um, I go there every time I still go there now, I just feel like I've come home and it's my soul space. Um, but it's not so much the place that I've grown up. I think really there's a lot in terms of my parents and my parents' influence and exactly how they raised me. That's really influenced me. Shall I go into that a little bit?
2: Yes, please. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Cool. So, um, mum stayed home as so many mums did, I guess, back then till I was about And then she trained to be a teacher. So I saw her, I guess I was such an impressionable age at 10. I saw her doing something outside of the home that stretched her and fulfilled her. And again, coming back to that New Zealand, looking at the rest of the world as a stage, really wanting to grow and thrive and stretch yourself I I don't know if that's where it came from for her but I I guess I saw that and her mother my granny also worked as a teacher so my childhood and maybe even my genes were kind of informed by the sense of service and of going beyond the the core role of mother which you'll understand with my work and as we get into that's a a big part of, of what I do in my philosophy um even before mum started teaching, she used to say over and over this one thing that stayed with me. She'd say, you are the most important person in your life. You have to love yourself before you can love anyone else. And, and I listened to that and I heard it and I was like, yeah, 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 cool. Yeah. Um, as an adult, I totally see the wisdom in that now. And I know that back then, the, this kind of teaching that she did for me did a great service to me in terms of building my self-worth. But um, I think, you know, looking back on it as we can when we get older, I think I developed a heightened sense of self. And what I mean by that is that I became really focused on what I could achieve and how far I could reach. Um, I became someone, or maybe to be fair, it's that whole nurture versus nature debate, isn't it, where maybe I was... Inherently, already someone who strived, and, and maybe that comes back to the country that we're in and the culture that we live within to do more and to become more and to be better. And you know there's nothing wrong with that, of course, except um, it doesn't always align with what I now know in my adult life or believe to be humanity's greatest desire, which is connection. And so, I mean, connection to others, but also a deep connection to self. I kind of um, I kind of think I lived outside of myself a little bit. I strived and I became all these things. I got selected for leadership awards and I got main parts in school shows and I became the head prefect student leader of my high school. And, and all of that was celebrated. You know, there was nothing wrong with it. It was fantastic. But then I grew a little older and, um, my mindset or my perspective hadn't really changed. I was still kind of living a bit outside of myself, striving, striving. And I was invited on this incredible 18 month leadership course where we had to, we actually had to audition to prove we had the goods, that we were worthy of having this business investing in us. Um, and so, you know, there I was. I was about, oh, how old would I have been then? I was older. I was probably about 28. And so I stood up all loud and proud and spouted off all my achievements sat down feeling really pleased with myself and then the main facilitator feedback he um he said you, I can't, something like you think you've got this self-awareness rubbish you know you think you're some superwoman how do you think all your peers felt when you spouted off all these achievements like he was it was really harsh and I was um You know, can you imagine in that one moment I'd kind of spent my whole life, you know, striving and believing that I could be whatever I wanted to be. So I was I was just really cut down to size big time in that one moment. And and it was humiliating, but it was also humbling. And I know now when you can sit in your pain, you can feel your way to the light on the other side. And I didn't necessarily think of it like that at that time but that's what I did and I grew so much my perspective was shifted really forever and it made me into the mother I am today and it gave me the greatest platform for the work that I'm doing now which is in identity and authentic leadership using mindfulness and meditation as well um so living in New Zealand and having you know this home down under, but this world stage to strive for, having this mum who said, you know, you have to love yourself, that was amazing. But I think without knowing it, I kind of took it almost a step too far, kind of living outside myself. It it was a bit, um, I wasn't egotistical by any means, but it was a little bit of the ego, I think, and now coming back to my parents, um, coming back to my dad, mum and dad. Funnily enough, now that I use meditation in my work, they actually met at a meditation camp back in the seventies, and um, my dad has continued his practice all these years. And so, all through my childhood, he was there. He'd be home at five pm to have dinner with the family every night. He was a really grounding, peaceful presence, and. So, with where I've come and what I'm doing now, this work in authentic leadership, I really feel like I've come home. It's kind of as if with mum and dad meeting at meditation camp and dad with his really steady practice, I feel like it was always in my blood, much like, you know, water and the beach is in my blood too. So, it's, it's, um, it has been a real shaping of me without me knowing it at the time. I think it's such a great questions really because it makes you mm-hmm. kind of look back and go oh yeah there are certain influences people and places and where you live in the world it really does shape you but it's not until you sit and think about it that you kind of pull all of those pieces together and go yeah I am totally a product of my childhood and you know even where I was conceived and where I live yeah. so um yeah so so all of those things have had a, a really big effect, and I, I love living in New Zealand I wouldn't change it for the world
2: uh, well you know it's funny because uh, so often I do start with the question of your, about your parents and part of the reason I wanted to start with the question of New Zealand is particularly because you guys have been on the world stage in a way that you haven't before lately, not necessarily for good reasons
3: absolutely um, and that
2: has nothing to do with you know the people of New Zealand. I think if anything, the actions of your politicians showed us that we, you guys are setting an example for us to follow.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: when I saw that, you know, gun laws changed within days, I was like, what the hell? Why is this not how we operate?
3: <laughs> yeah. Why do
2: you... So, like, what is it about the country, um, one that would allow you guys to elect a woman who had a baby while she was in office? Yeah. Um, and why do you think more countries are not like that? Like, why do we not see more Jacinda barretts in the world? Why do we not see more of a culture who... Yeah. Literally looks at something like this and says, you know what? We're going to make sure this never happens on our soil again.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, Well, I think it's partly like what I was saying before that we're this little country on the edge of the world, who has for so many years been seeing um, this huge stage that we have the potential to be part of. I mean, we are part of it, of course, we're part of the world. But do you know, down here, it feels like so many of those countries are, are so far away, and what they're doing is so far away. But at the same time, it gives us... Um, It gives us a vision and it gives us a motivation and it gives us an inspiration to stand up and say, hey, you know, we're here too. We might be so far away, but we're here too. And we've got a lot to say and we've got a lot to offer. And I think as a country and as a culture, we really back each other to have a go. we, We very much have a culture of she'll be right, you know. Don't worry what's going on, we'll make it happen, we'll make it work, we'll figure it out. Very much, um, very innovative culture. And so, with that, of course, you know, we've had um, several female prime ministers, and the current one, yes, she is fantastic. Not only is she female, she's so very empathetic. Um, And maybe that also comes from a place our country being so small, you know, we're not so Mm. widely spread out that we have lots of, um, States and lots of different laws within different states. We're one country, we're very united, and so with that comes a sense of belonging and a sense of needing to be empathetic, and also a sense of having to have each other's back. So, yes, if things go wrong, we need to make a stand and we need to make change and we need to make that fast, and we can gather together and rally together because we are small and we can make that change.
2: Yeah, why do you think more of us are not like that? Like, why is the United States not like that? I mean, let's not obviously turn this into a Trump bashing <laughs> session, but uh, <clears throat> because I, you know, I, I don't think that this, like, the fact that the United States is not like that predates this current president.
1: Mm. Yeah, well, it's hard to know exactly why, but I think it comes back to that sense of connectedness and unitedness and belonging, and you can still have that on. A huge platform and in a big country, but it starts at home. It starts with you. So I, I think we're seeing a whole wave of change now, not just in our country, but in other countries too, around yeah. um, around belonging and belonging to yourself, and actually, you know, working on yourself, doing the self the, the self work, so that you can. Have that sense of self-worth and believe in yourself and have the self-compassion because when you do all of that work For yourself, you can then do that and be there and give that to others, right? So I don't know why other countries aren't necessarily, you know, making fast change and swift action like Jacinda has done for our country, but I do know that it starts at home, it starts with yourself. So we can all have that, we can all achieve that, but maybe instead of looking outside of ourselves and, you know, blaming the person. Who's in charge? The leader. Who's in charge? Maybe we turn our gaze back inwards and say, "Okay, well, what can I do in one small way, or in a few small ways, in my home, in my community, to connect each other and unite each other and support each other?" And when we do that in small ways, you know, it's 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 like a snowball effect. It can then grow and grow and grow. So, that would be yeah, that would be my take on it.
2: Yeah. So, as somebody who was raised as the daughter of a school teacher, yeah. um, I wonder how seeing your mother in that role affected your own views and perceptions of education.
1: Mm. Oh, um, undoubtedly. You know, when she trained, I was about 10 years old. And so, um, and in those first few years of teaching, as all teachers will know, you are you know, mind, body, heart, soul, all in, all your spare hours, evenings, weekends are spent developing your resources and making your plans and doing your planning because it isn't just second nature when you get into it at first. Um, and so as a child, me and my sister spent a lot of time cutting out things for mum, colouring things in for her, going and visiting her classroom. So we really were immersed in Education and um, the educational environment. Um, And yeah, seeing her, I didn't go and obviously take part in her classes when I was young, but as I got older, I would. I'd go and visit her at school, and she teaches littlies, um, new entrants, so that's kind of five and six year olds. Mm. And I would go and sit in her class. And then when I had my own kids, I would take them as little toddlers and let them kind of sit on the mat and join in. And to see her hold that space in a classroom and she's the kind of teacher who doesn't sit or stand apart from the children and the students. She lets them, you know, cuddle up to her and she has this, you know, spark and this light in her eye. She's very... She's got that empathy as well. And um, my sister's a teacher, also, she's a very creative teacher. So I really have been exposed to that in different ways in terms of different teaching styles. And I've seen my children and their, you know, the children in their classrooms delight in their teaching. And I guess what that's given me um, is a love of learning, Mm. absolutely. Also, it's given me the understanding that everybody learns in different ways and it's really important to have different styles for when you're teaching people, but also important to understand the style and the way that you best consume content and consume learning. Yeah. So it's given me quite an awareness of yeah, styles of teaching and um, styles of receiving that teaching and certainly given me that that real love of learning, which is, I guess, why, you know, I trained as a marketer. That's what I did at university. But in more recent years, I've trained over and over again as different things. So, I do have that kind of um, Almost that, you know, subconscious or subliminal yearning yeah. to, to keep learning and keep, you know, finding and discovering new things in life that I can just sink my teeth into. Yeah.
2: Well, I appreciate that you brought up learning styles because I think that it was really interesting. I was listening to Adam Grant and uh, Stephen Dubner, the host of Freakonomics, talk about learning styles. And uh, you know, Adam Grant mm-hmm. did an episode called "Fad Busters," which was interesting because he talked about you know he thinks learning styles are a fad, and and Dubner kind of disagreed with him. And I think the most interesting thing that I, I heard in that whole conversation was when Stephen Dubner, who is the host of this wildly popular podcast, that I don't listen to podcasts, and I kind of I thought in that moment I was like, yeah, me either, really, despite being the host of one. Uh it's not my <laughs> it's not my preferred form of media. I would much rather mm. read books. Uh and yet yeah. I and I, I think for some strange reason uh that has translated well into doing this.
1: Yeah. That's really interesting. I am the opposite. So I'm a massive consumer of books and I love paper books. But more recently having discovered the likes of Audible and being able to listen yeah. to books, that's now where I consume. So all of my favorite authors, I will listen to them because I think it's because it's their uh, voice. You know, like the likes of Brene right. Brown. I've I've actually got her paper books, but I prefer to listen to her through Audible because I feel like it's her, she's talking Mm. to me. And there's something about the voice and the vibration of voice for me that I just, I just sink into it. And so for me, yeah, I love Audible. I I very much listen to, you know, heaps of podcasts, which is of course where I discovered you and yours. Um, And I think for me, it's that voice. And so in terms of teachers, not just seeing different teaching styles, but hearing different voices, that would be, Why and how I would kind of decide which teachers. I resonated with most. Yes, it was partly what they were teaching and their message, but it was how they delivered it. Mm. Um, And same goes for meditations. And, you know, I can go to a yoga studio and a yoga class or I can use meditation apps and and I'll kind of, you know, get there and I'll be all ready for this, you know, amazing, soulful, mindful experience. And, you know, sometimes and quite often the person opens their mouth and the voice comes out and I think, oh, no. No, no, I, c- I cannot let this. Like, it really has quite an effect on me.
2: hmm Yeah.
3: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door.
2: thing that your mother told you about the fact that you are the most important person uh, in your life. Because I don't think most of us are taught that and most of us don't believe that. Yeah. Um I think that we often, you know, will defer to other people. Uh we do it in relationships. We do it um in in job situations. Like we're taught to bow down to authority. Particularly like you grow up in my culture, (laughs) you're not the most important person in your life and you don't have a lot of say. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, unwinding that has, you know, been years and years and years of work and recognition that I didn't have boundaries with Mm. my relationships and uh, all sorts of stuff where I wasn't willing to do that. Mm. And I wonder how you begin to shift that narrative, uh, particularly when it's so deeply embedded by the time that you're an adult, if we didn't get that message the way you did.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely you're so right when i talk to people about this they're like wow that's that's really deep that's you know that's not not usual in a in a childhood to have that back in our generation as you say um do you know? I, I heard this fantastic speaker recently. His he's a doctor, um, and he's he's out your way somewhere. Dr. Bruce Lipton. He's a cell mm-hmm. biologist, yeah, yeah. and he was talking about um, he was talking about the age and stage of children and humans, all of us, and and how we grow up. And from the age of, I think he says, um, from the third trimester you know, when you're in the womb through till about two, we largely live in the delta brain state, which is, of course, sleep, you know, babies sleep a lot. And then from two till seven, we live in the theta brain state, which is um, the subconscious and and it's playful. It's like the, the conscious subconscious. Of course, you're awake and you're playing. But what he was talking about and what he meant is that everything that happens across those years, whether as a child you're doing it Or you are taught it, or you're observing it, it goes straight into, there's no filter, there's no rational filter, it goes straight into your subconscious. It programs you to a certain extent. So, what that means is, as adults, what we're taught and and what we've observed and what's in our subconscious that starts to play back. And and that is how we operate ourselves. And it's the default position that we go into also when things go right, but also when things go wrong. So for me, I had that um, amazing teaching. And so I guess, although I kind of almost stepped a bit outside of myself, maybe took it a little bit too far when I was young. I I have that grounding and I have that basis. So with the wisdom that comes with age, I can kind of play that back a different way and see what it really means, which is amazing. To answer your question in terms of for those who didn't grow up with that message, we absolutely can still plant it within ourselves. I think what it takes and, you know, so often these things are simple. It's just about having an awareness of what's going on and a mindful intention to change that. So I think the work is about that, um, taking that pause between the stimulus and response. It's what Viktor Frankl talks about, you know, something happens before you just Bite back or go to that place of the inner critic, which is like, oh, well, you know, I'm not good enough, or no wonder he doesn't love me, or whatever it is that you're telling yourself. You can intentionally take that pause and say, hang on a minute, what's the story I'm telling myself here? Because all, all of our subconscious and programming, of course, are stories, and we have the power to change them if only we take that pause and we take that awareness to say, what is the story I'm telling myself? And then how do I want to feel or what do I want to happen? What is the right and the best response here? Not for everyone else, but actually for me. And part of that is about knowing your own values as well and doing work on what are my values? What's important to me? Cause when you can be clear on that and stand strong in that, then also your boundaries start to form around you and kind of protect you, I suppose.
2: Yeah. So I wonder, uh, two things here. Um, How do you strike a balance between that and delusion and optimism? And and I'll I'll give you a bit more context. I I think that the world that you and I play in in general is incredibly guilty of delusion, uh, delusional optimism, as opposed Mm. to, you know, rational thought based on probability uh, to Mm. a fault. Like mm. And I said it the other day, you know, I mean, I had this really interesting conversation with Annie Duke, um, who wrote a book called Thinking and Bets, and we were talking about probability of decisions yes. uh, or outcome, probability of outcomes when you make decisions. And, you know, like, I hate to say, I, I said, look, the law of attraction isn't going to create product market fit if nobody wants to buy your shit. Mm. It's just not. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, And yet, you know, particularly in the world that you come from and and the group of people that you were referred to me by, I know this because I've had many of these conversations. And sometimes I like I am rational and logical to a fault. (laughs) And I'm well aware of that. Okay, I recognize that I am the person who drills people until you can back up things by research and. Sometimes that's to my detriment because I realize there are things that I cannot explain or understand, and I'll I'll give you one other example of this. And I'm not sure if I shared this on the show before. Um, You know, the day of my sister's wedding, uh, we the wedding was outdoors, and it was really it just got really, really windy right before the ceremony was about to start, Mm -hmm. and. At an Indian wedding, you have this platform called mandap, which we had built on the golf course. But the guy who built it said, look, we didn't build this thing accounting for this much wind. Um, there's like a 1% chance that this thing is going to fall. And I said, well, considering it's my sister, let's not take that 1% <laughs> chance. He said, well, great. Well, I need you to go get some you know, relatives so they can hold the, the beams yeah. on the, the four corners. Mm. And what was interesting was the moment the priest started the ceremony, the wind died down. Ah. And that was the one moment in my life where I said, you know what, there are things that I will never be able to explain or understand. But that being said, I want you to address my question about delusion and optimism.
3: Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. It's a really good question, isn't it? Um, Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I am by nature an optimistic person, but I also have a little bit of the, the logic in me too. I think, you know, there's there's a there's potentially a fine line between delusion and dreaming. And I don't mean dreaming as in, oh, you know, one day it'd be amazing if that happened. I mean actually envisioning what what may be and kind of, you know doing the work to kind of manifest that. Like you say, sometimes the universe just has your back and sometimes things get delivered and you can't predict that, you can't have absolute certainty and control over that. But there is, I don't know, there is a a softness and um, a lovely feeling around that versus delusion, which just sounds like you're completely all up in your mind and, um, you know, It's, it's ridiculous that you might even have this thought. Maybe that's the difference between delusion and optimism is that I feel like optimism is an embodied state. Like, you know, when you feel optimistic about something, even now, as I say this, I'm kind of sitting up straighter, you know, you kind of feel like this feels really good. This feels powerful. This feels empowering to feel versus delusion. I think kind of sits up in the mind and, Mm. um, you know, it's something and stories and ideas and, and whatnot that's going on up there. And in order for for things to really happen and for them to manifest, whether you take absolute one hundred percent direct control over them or whether you give over a little bit to yeah. you know the law of vibration attraction, the universe, etc. Either way, you need to have your whole body involved in that process you need to be embodied in that process so I think for me yeah the difference between the two is that optimism is kind of a whole mind body state delusion is something that just happens up in your mind and you're not feeling it you're not living it so therefore it's probably not you know likely to happen does that sound does that make sense
2: Well, it does. And, you know, I mean, like I I was working on a project with a friend and and he said, you know, man, he's like, look, he's like, anytime I've thought that something, you know, wasn't going to sell, even if it wasn't going well. And I'm like, look, man, I'm sorry, but you can't ignore the data. Like you just can't, uh, you know, I was, like I said, I mean, to me, I, I get, yeah, it, it does make sense because I think, I think you just have this sort of knowing, you know, I think when we, we did our conference in 2014, uh, I, even though I was terrified and I I thought I was going to throw up the day we sent out the email saying, <laughs> okay, applications are now open. I literally didn't look at my inbox for the first hour. And when I went and looked, I was like, holy shit, there are like 90 applications already. Yeah. And it was sold out in two weeks. And I think just deep down, I knew I was like, this is the time for this. It's time and it's going to work this time.
1: Yeah. Well, that's um, not delusion. That's, that's no. embodied optimism. You were just kind of yeah. avoiding the right. reality of that manifesting in that moment.
2: Yeah. But sometimes the data gives you the reality that, guess what? This is not meant to be. Like If you have data that indicates that nobody wants to buy something, Uh, I think all the optimism in the world isn't going to get you out of that situation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Um, And yeah, there are times when you do have to just look at the data. But I think you can still be optimistic even at that point. You know, it can be really hard to see data that you don't want to see. But then it's a matter of saying, okay, well, if that's the reality, if if that's today's reality, what do mm-hmm. I want tomorrow's reality to be? And that's where I can aim my intention and aim my optimism. I'm going to aim it to tomorrow or next week or next year. And this is where I'm going to kind of pivot my course. So it's about, you know, saying this is how it is now. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is t- today. I'm not going to delude yeah. myself, but I'm going to direct my optimism to what's going to happen in the future.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so I guess that, you know, when you look at this whole idea of you being the most important person in your life, you brought up ego. So there's no way I couldn't ask about this, uh, -hmm. because it seems like there's this fine line between, uh, self-love and self-worth and narcissism.
3: Yeah.
2: and where do you draw that line because i i I honestly think that every one of us, whether we want to admit it or not, have a degree of narcissism I mean otherwise we wouldn't update our status on facebook. We're all narcissists. <laughs> I'm sorry to yeah. say it like it's a narcissistic thing for me to go and update my status on Facebook. I know yeah. it is yeah um, so I wonder you know like where you draw that line uh, between self worth and narcissism
1: yeah, I think um. And in terms of self-love and self-worth, I use those two terms interchangeably. Um, yeah. But in terms of the line between those other two, what the thing that I learned really flipping hard when I was telling you earlier about that um, kind of leadership audition that I did, what I learned was that my self-worth and self-belief in myself was real and it was important and it led me to where I was and it gave me a steadiness and a strength and everything I needed to be able to show up and stand tall. But the way that I communicated it and the way that it landed was absolutely not right. The bit that I think was missing at that point was a deep sense of connection. Like obviously I was connected in in some surface shallow way to the colleagues and the people that I was there with, but it wasn't deep. It didn't have a level of compassion within it. And so I think that is the part that's missing and, and that's the line between those two things you're talking about is yeah. having a respect for yeah, this is who I am and and I'm and I'm proud of myself. I've worked hard to get where I am and I've worked hard to be who I am. And I have a respect also for how others might see me and how I'm going to connect with others in my self-worth. So stand up and stand tall and be proud but with a humility. And with a um, sense of compassion for others and how they might see you. You know, I get it when you talk about Facebook because not only do we put things up there that are true and that we're we're proud of, whatever that may be, but, you know, how many people put things up there that actually is a complete twist on the truth because they want to be seen as having the best day. I mean, I had this example um, a few years back. Um, it was one of my first Mother's Day. And, and I'll say it, my husband knows. I've blogged about it. It was not a good day. It completely fell down on my expectations. And later yeah. that day, I was on Facebook and I saw this post um, from a girlfriend of mine who's posting a picture of champagne and flowers and it's all roses. And, you know, it made me feel like shit. I was like, oh, my God. Other people are having these days, and I'm not and do you know what I spoke to her a little while later I don't know how yeah. how how long later it was, and I was like, man, you're so lucky you had looked like you had a fantastic day and you know what she said to me that champagne I had to buy that bottle I had to open it for myself <laughs> Why did you post it then? Because do you know how it landed and how it made me feel and probably others? I mean, I didn't, you know, point the finger because we all do it, but we had this conversation about actually how things show up when you twist Mm. them a little bit. And so back to your question, I think the line in the sand, the line that we need to draw is um, the line of compassion.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I have, I am at this point, I mean, I told Douglas Rushkoff when I was talking to him, I said, we're living in the matrix. Uh, Mm. you are effectively plugged into the matrix every time you go onto these sites. And Mm. the more that you do it, the more and more you start to become unaware of the fact that it is a filter bubble and the more it becomes like water to a fish and the job of the platform is done. You're plugged in. Now they can sell your attention.
1: It's, you know, they, they hire people mm-hmm. at these, you know, Facebook and the like, who are, you know, doctors in addiction. Mm-hmm. They literally hire these people so that they can create algorithms to get us addicted. Yeah. When I heard that, I was just like, oh, my God. Like, how ethical is that? It is, it is not right. Yeah. And so the job for us now, for our generation, because we've just got totally sucked into it, but especially for our children, is to be able to teach ourselves and teach them the healthy use of it. You know, it has its place, of course. I probably wouldn't have found out about you and Daniel yeah. Laporte and other and desire mapping, which is a, a massive part of my life now. I wouldn't have found out about that without these social platforms. But it's bringing the consciousness back into it, and it's bringing the compassion into it, mm. and it's having that moment, like I was talking about between um, the stimulus and response, you know, before you just fire something out there, whether it's onto a social platform or whether it's directly to another person, just stop and think, how is this going to land? You know, because it's, life is all about connection. I mean, I say that humans have two fundamental needs, which is to feel significant in a sense of belonging. But I think that we use these social platforms much more to feel significant about mm. ourselves and what we're doing in our lives than to cultivate a sense of belonging. So I think yeah. it's about bringing those two things into balance.
2: Well, I, I mean, I think that's why I wanted to have a conference in, in 2020, because I thought, you know what, I will choose a face-to-face conversation with 400 listeners over a million downloads any day.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's meaning in that, right? And I think yeah. what we're really getting to in this whole wave of consciousness, conscious consumerism, well being, all of the rest of it, what it really boils down to is connection and belonging and meaning. It's mm-hmm. it's you know, I was talking to um some students the other day in some work that I'm doing and they, and we all, grew up with this idea of having smart goals. And as a logic guy, you'll love that, you know, specific, measurable, yep. achievable, realistic, timely. And I was thinking, I really think it's time that we change the M from measurable to meaningful, mm. you know? Let's set goals, like Danielle says, goals with soul, but let's set goals, sure, that are smart, but let's make the M be meaning because yeah. meaning is what life is all about. Yeah. Yeah. Wow.
2: So one thing you said earlier, uh, in our conversation, uh, was this idea, you talked about this idea of leaning in the pain to get to the other side where the light is. Yeah. And I think that that struck me particularly because it's something that I fucking hate doing. (laughs) I just do.
1: do. It's so
2: awful. You're just like, really? Like, isn't there I remember six months in therapy, I remember sitting in a therapist for like three months into this. I was like, this is not happening enough. Why am I not over this yet? Yeah. And he said, look, you're making progress. You can't see it. But he said, I see you every day from a different vantage point. Yeah. Uh, not every day, but whatever, however frequently I was going. And mm. I wonder how we do that, how we cultivate that capacity without losing our minds.
1: Yeah, totally. It is I mean no one likes it. No one wants pain in their lives. We all want to feel joy and we all want to feel completely uplifted and like life's great. <laughs> but um but it's not always great. Um we we had a I mean one of the the biggest pains in our life in our little household happened um Oh, about 18 months ago when I went back to work, I got a nanny for my girls and um, she was this amazing, amazing woman. She has her own children, um, two teenage boys. So for her, my daughters were almost like the daughters she never had and she embraced our family and embraced my girls like her own. She was like their second mum and she adored them and they adored her. She was in our house, you know, for different number of hours each week, but in some way or shape or form, she was in our home every week and um, she got breast cancer. And I said, look, you know, take all the time you need. We can figure a way without you. You need to look after yourself. And she said, no, life is for living. I'm going to fight this and it gives me joy to be here with you. I'm going to keep working. So she did. She got through her chemo and her radiation therapy and she was doing great She nannied my girls on the Monday of this week that I'm referring to, and then on the Friday, I got a text message from her partner saying, I'm so sorry to tell you that she's passed away overnight, and I even get emotional talking about it now, because it was just like, it was so sudden, you know, it was so unexpected, and then I had to go and tell my girls, who were four and five at the time, you know, you saw Nikki on Monday, but she she got really sick and she's not coming back and it was you know it was it was so it was raw pain it was really really hard and um you know to answer your question we all have it in some shape or form you know it might be more mental and psychological therapy it might be deep grief there are so many different types of pain in life but you really have to sit in it to get through it and to answer your question the way I did it was, it, you know, it comes back to your point about self-love. This this one and this example isn't so much about self-worth within myself, but it was self-love for myself and for what I and my girls were going through. And so what I did, was I let myself cry. You know, I, I wrote about it. I blogged about it. I gathered people around me who could support me and I just I let it all out. And so, yes, it's hard, but again, it comes back to that point about compassion. When you have compassion for yourself and when you have an element of love, it doesn't even have to feel like love for yourself, but just care and kindness for yourself, then you can allow yourself the time and the space And it's about how you talk to yourself, you know, instead of saying, come on, it'll be okay. Come on, sort your shit out, you know, and even our kids, I I hear myself sometimes, of course, because nobody's perfect saying, oh, you'll be all right. You know, they're crying about something and I'll say, it'll be all right. And then I catch myself and think, well, maybe, maybe it won't be all right. Let them express themselves. Let them have this moment to just feel what they feel and to just express themselves and, And yeah, it's hard, it's really hard, but it's just giving yourself the love, the compassion, the kindness, and the space, and allowing it to come out in whatever way it comes out. You know, it might be tears, it might be be stomping your feet, whatever it is, whatever you need, just let it, let it out, let it be.
4: Ah,
2: Wow. So, I want to bring this full circle to... uh something you brought up at the beginning of our conversation. And I think this will make sort of a perfect way to finish our conversation. And that is to talk about this idea of striving, uh, yeah. which I think it really is funny because we talked about sort of Facebook, we talked about accomplishment. And this is something I think that has been deeply of interest to in me because it's something I've been wrestling with uh, yeah. most of this year and last year as I've watched friends Sell more books than I have, make more money than I have, you know, friends who started at the same time and this just, you know, tendency to compare. uh, And this sort of, you know, like hedonic treadmill that I cannot, you know, seem to mitigate uh, because these are all people I also look up to. Yeah. And so I wonder how you let go of this constant striving and still manage to be a productive. Uh, prolific creator and human being who is satisfied with your life,
1: yeah, totally, oh my God, there is just ugh, so <laughs> much comparison there's so much judgment you know self judgment on yourself in terms of how you're doing or how you're not doing, but I think you know it comes it comes down to mindset and it comes down to Actually, there's no one else you need to compare yourself to except yourself. Have a competition, but have a competition with yourself. And for me, one thing that I discovered um, over the last few years um, in my work is strengths, strengths strengths-based leadership. So really understanding what your strengths are, not just, hey, Srini, what are your strengths? And you say, well, I'm a really great listener and I'm creative. Like we know that, you know that. I'm talking about strengths that have come through decades of research by the Gallup organization and I've done my strengths assessment and I know what my top 5 strengths are based on all these years of research based on this massive deep assessment. And so now for me it's about knowing okay these are my strengths so I'm going to aim my strengths toward my goals and toward my vision for myself and when I use my strengths and when I feel I'm at peak performance for myself within my own framework of who I am, what's strong, not what's wrong, then I can feel like I'm absolutely succeeding because it's on my terms and it's based on my understanding of myself. And that's an understanding of self that goes deep. It's taking off the hats we wear. It's taking away the role we play all of the expectations because that's where comparison and judgment comes from it comes from expectations the expectations that others put on us the expectations that we put on ourselves so if we just change that mindset and reframe it look at where am i strong not what's wrong and then use those strengths and your core you know your core worthiness and value use that as your framework for success instead of someone else's because we're all different and differences actually are advantages. We can be in the same line of work as other people. We can be, you know, producing books, just like our our colleagues are producing books, but they're all going to be different because they're they're, they're written with a different hand. They're written with a different voice from a different person. And so it's about owning your uniqueness owning your authenticity and, and, and that's it, you know, showing up and leading your life and leading yourself in your work from a place of truth to you, not to anybody else. Amazing. Um,
2: well, I really think that just makes such a beautiful place to uh, wrap up our conversation. So I have one last question for you, which I know you've heard, I've heard you, yeah, you've heard me ask, what do you think it is? that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I think someone who is really clear on their values, on what's important to them in life, someone who's really clear on their desires, on how they want to feel, who holds firm to their boundaries, but not rigidly, more with the self-compassion that we were talking about and a self-respect and an inner knowing that they are standing in their integrity, in their authenticity. Someone who, you know, who really shows up, shows up to themselves, for themselves, who stands tall, not with an ego but with an inner pride for who they are and of who they are and is seen for who they are authentically. Someone who has the courage to do that that's what makes someone unmistakable
2: Hmm. amazing uh i i could literally sit and listen to your voice all day it's incredibly soothing
1: uh (laughs) uh,
2: i can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners um so uh where can people find out more about you your work uh everything that you do and i know that you've put together something special specifically for our listeners
1: I have. So tuifleming.com is where you can find out about the work I do in authentic leadership. And for your listeners, I have written, designed, and recorded a special meditation. It's a 10-minute mindful meditation called The Art of Self. And you can find that at tuifleming.com forward slash unmistakable.
2: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that.